0: there are definite special considerations when it comes to cannabis use in women. My name is Janester Wilson-King, I'm a physician, I'm a board-certified OBGYN, also the co-vice president of the Society of Cannabis Clinicians, a board member of the Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, and I am a cannabis clinician. <music>
1: You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. So today I'm really delighted to be reconnecting with a friend of mine that I met several years ago that's doing really interesting work in Florida, Dr. Janester Wilson-King, who is an OBGYN and involved in so many different aspects of Uh, the clinical use of cannabis that we're going to get into, but uh, welcome Dr. Wilson King for uh, coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you, Jason, for inviting me. I think we reconnected on uh, LinkedIn. I think that's how we, yeah, how we reconnected after not seeing each other for the past four, five years or so. So this has been fun.
1: Yeah, we have a lot to catch up on, uh, which is always really exciting. And um, to give people a little bit of background on on your work, and I hope I don't misrepresent it at all, but you've been doing all sorts of work in in women's health for a while. But you've had you know um, different levels of focus. You're uh, not only you know in general in OBGYN, I've been working women's health for a while, but you're also an expert on the concept of bioidentical hormone therapy. Isn't that right yes. as well?
0: Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, I had. Um, a conventional OBGYN practice for many years. And my practice began transitioning to more of an integrative wellness practice, mm-hmm. uh, which is the focus the past 10 years or so. Um, because I didn't like pharmaceuticals, and I saw my patients as they were aging and going through life just increasing the number of medications they were taking. Mm-hmm. And I was a firm believer in, you know what, if you eat right, if you exercise and really take care of yourself, you shouldn't have to go through all that. Sure, there's various stressors in life and various times when you need an antibiotic or something like that. I'm not, I'm not knocking that, but I do believe that there's a better way to do this as a healthier way Mm -hmm. and a more graceful way to age. We should not have to look at aging as, okay, I'm going to, by the time I'm over 50, I'm going to be taking 10 or more medications and half of them are going to be because of the side effects of the other half. And what a way to go. So essentially what I do now is I assess where men and women. So I focused on women and then the women, said, can you fix my husband? Because he can't <laughs> keep up with me. <laughs> so then I branched out into men because of the demand of my patients. But I, what I do is assess where men and women are, one, the health and wellness spectrum, and then help them get to where they want to be. We, I use nutrition, lifestyle, behavior modification, supplements when necessary. Uh, although as a caveat here, I'm not one who thinks you need to take 10, 15, or 20 supplements a day either, because there's nothing that says the supplements actually work. We know that these vitamins and minerals in food are helpful and beneficial for certain things, but we don't know if you get those same benefits via the oral capsule Mm -hmm. supplement route, or even if it's a liquid. So supplements when necessary, bioidentical hormones are a large part of my practice. Uh, Herbal and Cannabis regimens. Cannabis was a nice compliment when I came upon, when I began to introduce that. But all of my programs in the practice are individualized. And I've been doing bioidentical hormone or been using bioidentical hormones in my patients since the 90s. So I was one of the early users and believers in bioidentical hormones.
1: And how did you... um... Come upon that, and then we'll get into how you came upon cannabis. You know, after that, but how did you stumble into this world of bioidentical hormone therapy?
0: Um, it was more, it stumbled upon me. I yeah. was <laughs> managing my patients the usual way. If they're a woman of reproductive age and were having symptoms consistent with hormonal imbalance or hormonal Mm -hmm. dysfunction, put them on birth control pills. If they're, if they're menopausal, then you put them on the pharmaceutical hormones. And then there was PMS Mm -hmm. and I just didn't have an effective way of managing women with PMS and I had PMS myself. So I said, okay, There's got to be a better way to do this. My local pharmacy had a really dynamic uh, pharmacy tech who gathered all this information about progesterone and bioidentical Mm. hormones and whatnot. She was looking to expand the pharmacy's compounding section. Mm. And she took these... And I'll, this shows you how long ago this was. She had cassette tapes <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, of um, uh, seminars and talks about bioidentical hormones. And, and she went to every OBGYN in town and delivered these all this information, uh, books, brochures, etc. And it turns out I was the only one who re- looked at the stuff and read it. Uh-huh. <laughs> And I picked up the phone and called her and said, we need to talk about this. I really want to try this on my patients. And of course, what I do is I will try things on myself before Mm -hmm. I try them on my patients. Number one, I want to make sure it's effective uh, for what it says, what what I'm telling the patients it's effective for. Number two I want to make sure I can feel all the side effects or find out what mm-hmm. you're supposed to feel, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So I can share that experience with my patients. Right. And number three, it really gives the patient confidence if they know you've tried it too. Mm-hmm. Right. So I tried a lot of these things, especially the, the solution for PMS and it worked like a charm. Mm, wow. So I started utilizing that in my practice. And quickly became known as the hormone doctor. If you have any issue with hormones, you need to go see Dr. Wilson King. So that's how I got into bioidentical hormones. And I started going to conferences, listening to lectures, and talking to people who knew more about it than I did. This is this was not something discussed in medical school. Mm-hmm. And so it, it had to be self-taught. But along the way, I always knew, and this is the way I practiced medicine, I always knew that we're more than just our physical body. We're a spirit that has a soul that lives in a body. So you really need to address all three. They all three need to be in balance in order Mm -hmm. for you to be well. So I would ask my patients about stress and stressors. Mm -hmm. And I would ask them what they do for relaxation and meditation. What do they do? What is their spiritual life like? Not really. uh, Not focusing on any one way. Sure. I I just have some spiritual life. That's all. Some way of connection with nature, with the universe, things bigger than yourself. Things bigger than yourself. Come yes. Things outside of us that love us, etc. So mm-hmm. it was. That's how I approached things. And then when I started doing bio-identical, bioidentical hormones, I started looking at things like that. And I put together a program for myself to teach patients how to do better, how they can cope, how can they how they can manage stress besides drugs. You know, it's really, it's amazing what you can do to your body.
1: Yes. If you
0: treat it right, the body is such a wonderful instrument that was created to really take care of itself. If Mm -hmm. you treat it right, put all the right things in it, do the right things with it and, and do that all important self-care, which we neglect and, and women, Especially yeah. neglect. We take care of everybody else and leave ourselves for last when it really should be the other way around. Because yep. yep. <laughs> if you're gonna be able to, wanna if you wanna be there for your family and others, you've got to be in yes. good condition yourself. So Absolutely. we have to learn to take we I had to teach patients and I had to learn that myself before I could teach it, that you mm-hmm. gotta take care of yourself first. So one of the things I did back in the 90s is I, uh, I was a single parent with with two little ones. And um, oh, it was so much fun. But being a solo practitioner, OB-GYN, yeah, yeah, yeah. and doing that, oh, my goodness, I was really burning the candle at both ends in terms yeah. of being up and doing and moving and grooving. So I one of the things I did is when I got home from work, I would go into my room and sit and meditate about 30 minutes. Now, I couldn't start off doing meditation for 30 minutes. Sure, you yeah. kind of it's like being quiet. Yep. And, and paying attention to breath. And of course, uh, within the first minute, your mind is going other places, and then you just kind of bring it back, settle it down. Exactly.
2: And,
0: and what I did is I just I told my kids, okay, mommy's gonna go in this room for 30 minutes. Now, unless you're bleeding profusely, (laughs) don't knock on the door because you know what's going to happen when mom comes out, she's going to be a more fun person that night. (laughs) So just let her have that 30 minutes so she can chill out and relax. And then we'll have a good evening. We'll get dinner ready and we'll, you know, go from there. So they started to learn to, okay, let mommy take 30 minutes and then we're good. So it was it was it was good. But of course all that changes when they're teenagers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot goes out the window then, right? Oh my
0: gosh. <laughs> Everything is an emergency. There's always this drama.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. And then
0: there's always okay, after about a week of me being home every night, my my daughter would say, Mom. You're never there when I need you. You're never there for me to talk oh, to. Gosh. And I said, okay, let's look at that. Did you get to watch all of your favorite TV shows this week? Yes. <laughs> Was I home when you were watching them? Yes. <laughs> okay. So if you needed to talk to me, you could have come and talked to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> And she yep. was just, you know, how kids do—roll their eyes, suck their teeth—and she's like, "Mom." <laughs>
2: <laughs> like, well,
1: put yeah. it in
0: perspective, yeah, exactly. But it was—it was—it's all good. It was just all fun. But
1: well, it's—it's—it's yeah. it's, it's really cool to hear you talk about that. Learning the need to take that little bit of time to recalibrate
2: mm-hmm. from
1: basically from one world to the other um, because that's something I'm currently learning right now, Um, you know, now that we have a baby and especially because I'm working from home all the time. And I think this is something good for people to hear if they are working from home a lot right now, because I know I've been working from home longer than the pandemic. So I kind of had to get accustomed to how that affects your psychology when you're working from home and trying to separate work from family, you know, and all these different things. And I have a lot of friends that have been struggling with that, um, since they've been, you know, having to stay at home and work more. And that's the biggest key that I found that helps me is if I can have at least 15 minutes, ideally 30 minutes, when I finish doing all of my work in the home office, if I can just sit here and just kind of mentally prepare for what's about to come next and just Like you said, focus on the breathing, just Mm -hmm. kind of come come into the moment. You can almost feel the tension in your head start to like loosen up. Um, And if I'm able to do that, then stepping out of the office into the world of a screaming baby and, you know, Mm -hmm. stressed out wife and, you know, all of these sort of things that, you know, have to come into to, to help with. I can do it with a much better attitude and with a much better energy than if I'm like rushing to get through work and then I rush to get out there. Um, and then I'm frustrated and you know, all these different things. So I think that's a, a really valuable, um, lesson.
0: Yes, it really, really is. It changed my life. It really did. And once you know how the, the 15 to 30 minute break Mm -hmm. affects you, you you can do it when you need it yeah as opposed to just just only certain times you can hey if I'm preparing to go in front of a big audience or something or I'm going into Mm -hmm. a very important meeting I take the 15 minutes before the meeting or so just to go into that quiet space
2: Mm -hmm. and
0: just just chill so that I can be calm and focused when I go into the meeting or whatever it is I'm about to do
1: absolutely yeah and and part of it too is kind of having faith in your body and brain Mm -hmm. to do what you know it's capable of because like some people struggle with getting into that space because they're worried that like for instance situation like you just mentioned that i've been in as well if you're going to speak in front of an audience or uh you know go into some situation like that where you feel like you need to be preparing all Mm -hmm. the way up until the last second Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of that is a lie in our brain because you already know it. You already, you already know what you need to say. The key is getting your anxiety, your stress, all that sort of stuff, out of the way, so that you can just let your body and brain do its thing. Yeah, and um, and you'll you'll remember better. You know, there's all sorts of benefits, but it takes some faith, I think, to really trust that process.
0: Exactly, it really does, and you learn that as you go. You do yeah. learn. It gets it's it's it certainly isn't something that okay, I'm gonna do this the first time and then after that everything's supposed to miraculously be all right. Mm-hmm. No, it takes time and what you realize is the less effort you make towards mm-hmm. it, the easier it is to do. Yes,
1: yeah, like quicksand. Right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly.
1: And How did your journey, um, so in the 90s, you're learning about about, um, hormone therapies and stuff, which as an aside, something I wanted to comment on, you were talking about how a lot of that work wasn't taught in medical school, and isn't that such a funny um, juxtaposition with cannabis and the endocannabinoid system and all these Mm -hmm. other things that also are still not really being taught in medical school, Um, you know, there's some CME classes and stuff now that are great that you're probably involved in. Um, But there's still not a lot of widespread physician education um, on these topics. So I I just wanted to like pin that in the air that that's a very interesting dynamic that before you got into cannabis, you had already sort of been through this kind of dynamic Yes, with a totally different, not totally different because they're, they're related, but uh, you know, seemingly different topic altogether. So How did that proceed into you discovering, um, cannabis as a physician?
0: Well, you know, to follow a little bit of what you were saying, Mm -hmm. I, cannabis and hormones are really similar and we'll get Mm -hmm. into that a little bit later, but I believe my hormone preparation, bioidentical hormone preparation was a great foundation for my cannabis not learning because that was also, that also had to be self-taught. I didn't learn about the endocannabinoid system in medical school and and whatnot. So about 2005, well, I had, of course I had colleagues in California and Mm -hmm. they were the first to pass a law in 1996. And the early 2000s, I started having more colleagues that were talking to me about cannabis. So about 2005, I read the first book I ever read about cannabis was Lester Grinspoon's The uh, Marijuana, the Forbidden Medicine. And the reason I read it is because he had an interesting story in that he was a psychiatrist at Harvard, and he set out to prove how bad cannabis was for you by doing this research. And he found the exact opposite and found that it was really a collection of patient stories on how the use of cannabis impacted their life, and there was one section on the elderly that really stuck out. It was a there was plenty of anecdotal stories about the elderly and how they went from being homebound. And lonely and whatnot to being much more social and being able to go out in public and do th- do more things without feeling all the the pressures of being elderly and alone. Yeah. So the there was this one story of a man, he was 82, and he had six siblings, there were seven of them all together, they grew up on a farm. In Kentucky, and they grew hemp. And they had hemp tea. Now, when I say hemp, it's in quotes. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) They had (laughs) hemp tea, and uh, their parents used the salve if they were Mm -hmm. injured or cut or Mm -hmm. anything. And this family grew up surrounded by hemp and always used hemp throughout their lives and all of the siblings they were in their upper 70s lower 80s they none of them were on any medications they were all active they all had were sharp mind maintained their sharp minds and still worked on the farm and did things and were mobile and felt healthy didn't have any medical problems and they attributed that to hemp having hemp a part of the diet and yeah. when you think about it when they when this in the late eight, mid to late 1800s actually mid1800s cannabis was the most widely prescribed medication yeah. yeah in this country the salves the tablets the teas all sorts of things you can go to the apothecary which was what they called the pharmacy back then and and get whatever you needed so, we took it away in 1937 the government took it away so you we've gone now this is probably the fourth generation without hemp in their diet and we have widespread autism we have fibromyalgia we have chronic fatigue we have all these various conditions that don't respond to conventional medicine Mm -hmm. very well, mediocre at best, but seem to really respond well to cannabis. Mm -hmm. What does that
1: And They're largely, they're largely chronic conditions. They
0: are chronic conditions. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and I love Western medicine. Don't get me wrong. If I have a bladder infection, you give me that antibiotic. (laughs) I will definitely take it. Yeah. But when it comes to managing chronic disease, Western medicine isn't the best because you really medicine shouldn't be taken over a long period of time, years upon years, upon years, just to keep taking it because it does do something to you and it will have negative consequences if that's what you do. So that whole, anyway, that book led me to, I just dove into cannabis research, went to California, visited some colleagues, watched what they were doing. And just said, wow, cannabis is really a good thing. We already have this receptor system in our bodies for yeah. cannabis. Now, how much more how much more of a message do we need <laughs> that this is meant to be for us? It's meant to be ingested. It's meant to be used. Well, and
1: us. what blows my mind that um when I interviewed Ethan Russo, we talked about this, but how mind blowing it is that CB1 receptors are the most dominant receptor in the brain of their type, you know, of these G Mm -hmm. protein coupled receptors, uh, which are a very common type of receptor. So Mm -hmm. to say that CB1 receptors are the most dominant of their type in the brain, like that's a huge deal. And it, and it shows how, um, We've missed such a big piece of human physiology throughout the past several decades, hundred years or so, as modern medicine, as we know it, has been developed. Um, which is really interesting to think about. Um, you know, that we're we're trying to treat, you know, like mental health, for instance, trying to treat mental health, but we're ignoring CB1 receptors. You know, right? You're so like, dominant. Okay,
0: mental health, brain, CB1 receptors, brain. Okay. Put those together. How do you leave that out?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a weird situation that, um, you know, most of the physicians that I've spoken with that are, you know, kind of on this level that have been studying for the past, you know, several decades, trying to wrap their heads around this. um, You know, I hear this message echoed of like, oh my gosh, you know, we've developed so much of our modern Western medicine, totally ignoring one of the biggest physiological systems in the body
0: that's right that's right and the endocannabinoid system is the most widespread receptor system in the body that's exactly right and it was discovered in the the early 90s yeah. and until a few years ago still wasn't taught in medical schools there are several medical schools now one of which is my alma mater Thomas Jefferson in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I am a Philly girl.
2: Shout out.
0: (laughs) Yes. Shout out Philadelphia Eagles, Philadelphia 76ers. Yay. Um, (laughs) uh, it's it's and and Temple, actually, two medical schools in Mm -hmm. Philadelphia are teaching about courses on the endocannabinoid system. And uh, Jefferson is involved in research. So we're 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 getting there. We're we're a long way from where we were again, but we're not where we need to be. It's getting there. Yeah. What I want to see in the future is that it'll be a cannabis clinician residency. Yes. Yeah. Which would mm-hmm. be fantastic.
1: Yeah, and I mean imagine we're already making so much progress in understanding how to use cannabis in a more sophisticated way clinically, just based on the experiences of people like yourself that, you know, have had to kind of dive in the deep end, so to speak, and figure Mm -hmm. it out yourselves. Mm -hmm. Imagine the progress we'll make when we have, you know, so many more physicians on board that that are at least working with, um, you know, not just the plant, but all of these different expressions of, of the plant and these products and everything. And, you know, I, I understand the limit limitations of clinical research and the lack of incentives to do, you know, a lot of what requires heavy funding to, uh, to do some of the research, but there's so much we can just learn from the stories that physicians can share about their clinical experiences. And I mean, obviously clinical research is very important and it, it'll happen, um, but there's also a lot of wisdom to be gleaned just from understanding what physicians are seeing in their patients um, and what what patterns they're noticing. So it's exciting to me to hear that there are schools out there now that are teaching about this and empowering uh, physicians with a greater toolkit to work with. Because um, it's gonna it's gonna do great things just for expanding and maturing our mm-hmm. our own perception of of this plant and and how it can be used.
0: Exactly. Exactly. I'm excited about what the future is going to bring.
1: Yeah, when it comes yeah to that. Me too. I mean, it's already kind of like a series of tidal waves of information that's coming in now just with the uh you know, the slight loosening of regulations. Um so, yeah, it's going to be really exciting to see and and segueing into this topic of clinical outcomes, you know, I guess we'll get into um kind of the the meat of your work, so to speak, which is Um, when you are working with patients, um, what are you typically treating with cannabis or cannabinoids and what sort of outcomes, um, are you typically seeing,
0: um, you know, many women's health conditions. And this is really the, the key many women's health conditions have multifactorial components.
2: Mm, Yes. Yes.
0: Including mood. You're familiar with that, right? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Pain, poor sleep. Yes. yes. And hormonal dysfunction that just wreaks havoc. Yeah. In all aspects of life. So the capacity of cannabis to act as an anti-inflammatory agent, a muscle relaxant, a mood enhancer, a sleep remedy mm-hmm. and a pain reliever all at the same time make it ideal for women's health conditions and that's how i look at it if i uh, i have to be careful what i say because yeah <laughs> I, I totally I understand. Wish, I wish I could treat every health condition, every women, woman's health condition with cannabis, some form of cannabis product. Even if they just drink cannabis tea every day, mm-hmm. it can be helpful, uh, particularly for mood and, and hormones and whatnot. Because, you know, the female reproductive system is actually, the the brain has the most cannabinoid receptors, but the female reproduction system has the second highest Mm. uh, receptors uh, and uh, functions of the endocannabinoid endocannabinoid system. So that um, we, it interacts directly, the endocannabinoid system and hormones interact together. There's a bi-directional component Mm -hmm. there one influences the other and it's actually quite fascinating how that happens and estrogen is the hormone that regulates modulates the endocannabinoid system and hormones so i see cannabis affecting and helping all sorts of female conditions Uh, pms dysmenorrhea meaning menstrual cramps Mm -hmm. It's wonderful for endometriosis, and Mm -hmm. therapy today for endometriosis is medical or surgical and exactly, mediocre at best, usually ineffective, and if it does help, it stops. It's it's short-lived. The help is temporary, and then you're back where you started again.
1: And it's often misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. Yes,
0: exactly, exactly, and that's how... Some women get labeled with a mental health problem because oh, endometriosis yeah. is hard to diagnose. And if they keep doing these tests, like you do a pelvic ultrasound, you do mm-hmm. blood tests and whatnot, and everything looks normal, then you think, okay, she gets labeled as a as a, as uh, someone with a mental health illness, and then put on an antidepressant or some other uh, medication mm-hmm. or antipsychotic, and and goes on her way. And really, it's endometriosis that's not diagnosed and not treated. But cannabis, cannabis does wonders for endometriosis, and endometriosis is one of the clinical endocannabinoid deficiency conditions.
2: Mm, uh, I've talked with
0: Ethan Russo about that. He and I have had a conversation about it in the email exchange, and. He is, it's definite. It is an endocannabinoid deficiency. And he sent me a few papers to read, a few articles to read about it. And it's fascinating. So uh, cannabis is effective for that.
1: Do you mind um, mind describing, in case anyone listening is totally unfamiliar with endometriosis, the only reason I know about it fairly well is because someone in my family has it and has been through the ringer um with it but do you mind describing what endometriosis is in case anyone's unfamiliar Not with at it
0: oh endometriosis is the okay it's a disease that commonly that occurs in women between the ages of it's got a prevalence of about 10 to 15% in women of reproductive age it's mm-hmm. actually the presence of endometrial tissue. Now the endometrium is the inner lining of the uterus. That's where your Mm -hmm. menstrual flow comes from. So it's called, that's called the endometrium. And sometimes that tissue can get in pushed into the uterine wall or pushed Mm -hmm. out of the uterus completely and implant on the intestines, the tubes, the ovaries, implant anywhere in the pelvis or abdomen. And that tissue still responds to hormones and it causes a chronic inflammation at the site of implantation. So women have pain. We really don't know what causes endometriosis, but we do know that it is a disease of contrast, meaning it is benign, but it can be invasive meaning mm-hmm. it can penetrate the uterus and go to the tubes and, yeah. and other places, just like a cancer would, but it's not, but it's benign. It's not cancerous. Mm-hmm. We, it's also cyclic hormones, meaning your estrogen levels go up and then they come down. Progesterone levels go up and then they mm-hmm. come down. Cyclic hormones stimulate this growth. Whereas ah, if you're on a okay. continual hormone uh, level, that suppresses growth. So it's a fascinating disease that uh, we're still learning about, and it really affects the the patient significantly. It affects the families, the partners, Mm -hmm. and the carers of people with endometriosis, and it affects the patient's social and economic participation, their physiological, mental, and psychological health. It really can be impactful. So it's it's the most the symptoms are usually dysmenorrhea. That's uh, uterine cramping during the menstrual period, before the period, after the period. Chronic pelvic, back, and abdominal pain is just something that is very common in women with endometriosis, and the pain is often diffuse and poorly localized like Mm. you know how sometimes you ask a patient okay where is this pain Point it (laughs) out to me well they can't and that's part of what leads them to be labeled a mental health illness because surely you can tell me where the pain is you know that sort of thing Mm. so
1: so so doctors are just assuming these women are hypochondriacs basically
0: yeah or or Hysterical, yeah, everything yeah, yeah. <laughs> along those lines. Uh, yeah, you know, anxiety—you got a generalized anxiety disorder or mm-hmm. something to sure. that effect. Um, and unfortunately, we're quick to label women that way. That's why That's women true, yeah. don't get diagnosed with heart disease as early as men because their complaints are attributed to anxiety or. Yeah emotional hysteria and things like that, things that men like to attribute to women.
1: What you just said, I think is important to highlight because uh, some people may not realize what some of the statistics uh, around healthcare say about this issue, but um, women are far more likely to be disregarded in emergency rooms and in general healthcare settings when they um, are trying to get help over things and just in general, just being a woman, statistically, you're less likely to be taken seriously um, yeah. in, a, in a healthcare setting. And then if you're a woman of color, it gets even mm-hmm. worse.
0: Exactly. And, exactly.
1: And this leads to a you know a very underappreciated and underrecognized um, issue within our healthcare that we have populations among us that are receiving very, very different levels of health care compared to others. Totally, totally only because of either their sex or the color of their skin. Yep. Um, and I, I just think that's extremely important um, to point out because um, some of, especially my my white male brethren out there probably <laughs> are uh, ignorant to that idea or have never thought about that. Um but um, that's a really, really big deal in healthcare, care. Um, and it's one reason why I was excited to talk to you about this topic in general, because um, women's health is incredibly underrepresented. Um, and then when you get into issues related to how healthcare is, you know, different for people of different ethnicities and things, it gets even more complicated. And, and so much of our research is, um, you know, based on a, a very narrow and, Unrepresentative population.
0: Mm-hmm. True, and and a lot of the. Let me give you an example of the bone density charts for determining and the bone density tests for determining if if you have osteoporosis or not. Mm-hmm. They're based on European Caucasian women, and the, the parameters are for Caucasian women, but black women, African-American women tend uh, to have a higher bone density. So we don't necessarily, you can't, you can't diagnose osteoporosis as accurately in black women as you can with white women. Same with Asians, Mm -hmm. different bony structures. It's, there is a difference. It's just because the norms, quote-unquote norm, <laughs> is a Caucasian woman. That's not the norm. Yeah. We need to change what we're basing our parameters on and make it so it's, it covers more people.
1: Right, yeah. And <clears throat> in your work with cannabis is um, dealing with women of different ethnic backgrounds. Have you noticed uh, different responses or uh, different nuances in treatment with cannabis that's worth uh, bringing up? Oh, the one
0: I've noticed recently, and it's just because I am dealing with this now, mm-hmm. is I've had a, a harder time treating pain in elderly, Black women in particular, but elderly women in general. Hmm. They if they've been on opioids
2: oh, interesting.
0: and you're trying to get them to decrease their opioids or maybe even discontinue, you, cannabis, it's a lot harder to do. I've, I've realized that. I do a lot of the little tricks like, okay, take your... Mostly they don't like to smoke, so they're doing mm-hmm. capsules or tinctures. Yeah. So I'll say, okay, let's take your cannabis with salmon or a fatty meal or let's take the tincture and put some more MCT oil in in it so you can take it with something that's really fatty to so help it absorb faster and get into your system faster and that helps sometimes you have to some have to do more frequent dosing but then you have to be careful that they're you're not causing too much psychoactivity or too mm-hmm. much that stimulation such that, you know, you increase the risk for falling or something right, to that right. effect. Yeah. So it's a, it's a tricky, tricky management that you have to try to balance both ends of it. And it's, it's when I have younger patients, it's a lot easier, a lot easier to get the opioids down and have uh, cannabis have been more focused with the use of cannabis. Yeah, Yeah,
1: that's very interesting. And do you think that's related to like some structural changes that the like long-term opioid use might cause that partnered with all of the other nuances that come with old age, that that's um, just causing some very different um, pharmacological activity or something?
0: You know, cannabis, again, it's multifactorial Mm -hmm. and if you don't have a good relationship or outlook, actually, you don't have to have a good relationship, just if you look at cannabis in a negative light, like a lot of these people were raised under the, you know, drugs Mm -hmm. are bad, and all that sort of this is what it's going to do to your brain. So it's hard to get them to think of it as a helpful thing. And I find that if your spiritual, mental, emotional Aura or Mm -hmm. energy is not amenable to cannabis, or you're not receiving it well. It's harder for the cannabis to work.
1: And that may sound crazy, but it's it's like like a nocebo effect.
0: Exactly, exactly Mm -hmm. what it is. That's exactly what it is. So, I think it has to do with that. I also think it has to do with the fact that okay, we know that. Imaging studies have shown, has shown that the cannabinoid receptors. As the estrogen levels decrease, Mm -hmm. the cannabinoid receptors in the brain increase. So that they have the receptors for cannabis and I mean, for, uh, for endocannabinoids, but their endocannabinoid levels are low Mm -hmm. because their estrogens, estrogen is low. Estrogen actually down-regulates FA ah, okay. and increases anandamide synthesis. So it's doing what it can to increase an endocannabinoids in our body. But when your estrogen levels are down, you're not getting that. So the re- your re- receptors increase. Because they're starved. So they're like, okay, we gotta get more, we gotta get more. So you would think that utilizing, giving phytocannabinoids would be helpful, but who knows? It could be that the receptors are so starving that it just takes longer mm-hmm. to feed enough of them so that you can have an effect. You know, who knows what all this is about? It's right. it's 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 our our knowledge is very, very limited right now. And we definitely, definitely need more research.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's so fascinating. There, you know, that's making me think about how CBD would play into that too. You're talking about estrogen being a a thaw inhibitor and um, encouraging the production of the receptors. And I think about um, a compound like CBD that at least theoretically, and this has been hard to research in humans, um, but in rodents and things, they've been able to show that CBD tends to also inhibit thaw. And and thus, if the endocannabinoids are being produced, or at least with anandamide, um, that they'll linger in the body longer. And there's been some evidence that CBD might also stimulate the production of anandamide itself, which is sort of a complementary feature to um, the effects of estrogen in getting the receptors boosted and getting that FAW inhibited um, have you noticed um i guess unique clinical outcomes compared to using thc rich cannabis versus cbd um dominant products in that regard
0: actually i find that is is more of an individual thing i think yeah. what okay. i've seen type one chemovars, which THC dominant Mm -hmm. type two, which CBD, THC one to one, and then type three would be CBD dominant. I've seen all of them work on different people for similar, similar problems. So it's really more individually uh, manifested depends on the individual endocannabinoid tone. But one of the other things I do, uh, besides, uh, with the elderly, the, besides asking them to take their cannabis with a a more fatty substance. Mm -hmm. I do also try to get them to eat foods that are endocannabinoid enhancing foods like your, your chia seeds and your, your almonds and, you know, foods like that, that are salmon is good and things like that. So Yes, get your omega threes
1: up. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Uh, get those omega fatty acids mm-hmm. up—the basic mm-hmm. substrate for the endocannabinoids.
0: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So we try to, you know, try to do different things, but it's it's it can be difficult in some instances. But I will say this: my postmenopausal patients that are on hormones have a better mm-hmm. time with cannabis than the ones not on hormones. Not saying if you're not on hormones, cannabis isn't effective. Of course it's effective. It's just that I find it's effective. Uh, It's easier to titrate and find a dose when you're on hormones than it is when you're not.
1: And is that related to the dynamic you were talking about between cyclical Hormones and constant hormones—is that because yes. they're yes. they're on that constant regimen, so it it takes some of that um, some of those dynamics out of the picture, right now? And uh,
0: yes, remember though that the even on cyclical hormones, you still can do well with cannabis. Mm-hmm. It's just that there may be times when your dose needs to change. Or or the frequency of use needs to change because Mm -hmm. of the fact that in a menstruating female, uh, the menstrual cycle, the amount of anandamide, your endocannabinoid circulating is higher during the follicular phase. That's the first half of the menstrual cycle is highest during ovulation and is lower during the luteal phase so that you may find yourself not requiring as much cannabis if you're during the during the first half of your cycle and then needing more cannabis in the second half of your cycle which is called the luteal phase so you, not everybody uh, it's it's it may not even be the majority of women but some women will have that experience and it's it isn't abnormal that's the reason I'm highlighting it it is not yeah. abnormal to have to change your dose depending on your cycle and it's yeah. really an observant woman who will even notice that that's happening.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, this actually plays into something that I um, I talk about a lot, which is I anybody that is wanting to understand how cannabis is affecting them, I always recommend keeping a journal um, so that you can at least keep track of what you're taking, when you're taking it, you know, collect some basic information that you can share with the physician or whoever you're working with to try Mm -hmm. to see those patterns as they come out. And I, I think that's extremely valuable for uh, so many people listening to understand that, um, you know, if, if you're a woman, you need to pay attention to your dose a little differently um, than if you're a man. And something that I've wondered too, have you, have you treated any trans patients that are taking um, hormones um, going through like transition therapy or something and dealt with any of this?
0: Interesting question. I just read, no, I haven't treated anyone, but I just read, um, when I was looking into the sex differences, uh, cannabis use in men and women and sex mm-hmm. differences. And, and one of those differences is that men use cannabis more than women use higher doses and, mm-hmm. and more frequent use. Hmm but i think that's going to change but anyway that i'll get yeah, to that
2: i think story. so too yeah <laughs>
0: um but a study conducted in 2017 had uh, it consisted of over 1200 ch- transgender adults
2: mm-hmm.
0: and out of them 24.4% were cannabis users and cannabis use was significantly greater among transgender men compared to transgender women, which wow. I thought was fascinating.
1: Huh. Wow.
0: Yes. Fascinating. So that's, a, that's another part of the puzzle, another piece okay. that we need to look at. When we're doing studies now, we have to look at gender differences. And I'm talking trans, yes. bi, cis, all the... And such all the new gender definitions, we have to look at that and see how they apply. It's not just male female
1: anymore, exactly yeah you know and that's yeah, and that's something I really wanted to be careful to to point out because we have this like simplified way of saying, you know how does cannabis affect women differently than men, but what I really wanted to hone in on, and once again, why I'm so happy to be talking to you about this, given that you're focus is on hormones is that this is really about hormones more Mm -hmm. more than uh whether someone identifies as a male or female it's what is the chemistry of your body what hormones are at play in your physiology and how is that going to relate to cannabis use and it's something that has been on my mind a lot because i mean one all of this medical cannabis stuff is so new um but then also you know this Expanding our consciousness in terms of how we think about gender and sexuality and stuff is I wouldn't say it's new, but as far as how far along it is in mainstream consciousness, you know, we've we've definitely come a long way in a short amount of time, even though we have a lot further to go. Um, And that's that's affecting medicine on so many different levels. And I haven't heard one person talk about how cannabis affects anyone that is outside of the typical binary uh for gender identity um so that'll be really interesting research to see in the future um how how cannabis you know affects people differently in those sort of um um hormonal situations that we're not accustomed to um thinking about a lot um exactly. and it's gonna be really important because doctors are going to be working with patients like this sometimes maybe without even knowing it and um if they're working with cannabis you know these are really important nuances hmm. to understand
0: they are. And it's, it's, it, for me, it's, it's, it's a newfound freedom mm-hmm. to see people living their truth yeah. and not being ashamed to live their truth. I find mm-hmm. that very powerful, very empowering for myself, as mm-hmm. well as others, because it's, it's, it, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And, uh, and yes, that means We need to incorporate that in our research. We can't, that's a, it's a population that can no longer be ignored. It just can't. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, speaking of male, female differences and I'm not the moderator, so I guess I shouldn't do that.
1: (laughs) No, no, go for it. Go for it. (laughs) But,
0: you know, in, in how cannabis affects men and women differently you know, there was a uh, a study, a few studies, I'd say 10 or so years ago, that talked about uh, the, actually, I'd say probably less than 10 years ago, but it, it talked about men, male and female differences. And they talked about how men use higher doses, they're four mm-hmm. times more likely to try ca- cannabis. They prefer joints, blunts, vapes, and concentrates, whereas women use cannabis less frequently and in lower quantities and prefer oral administration or pipes. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, to, is being blown out the window uh, because I think it was more of a societal thing. Yeah. yeah. I, it,
2: mm-hmm.
0: I agree. Two things tell me that in the month of March, dispensaries reported more w- women bought more cannabis, cannabis, spent more money in dispensaries than men. The month of March, 2020. Wow.
1: I did not realize that. Wow. Exactly. That's fascinating.
0: And I, I just did a study. It's, it's a survey. It's uh, not published yet. We're in the process of we're analyzing it. But I looked at the routes of administration and the men and the women. And we had 528 men, 782 women. And as far as smoking flour or weed, so Mm -hmm. to speak, where it was thought that men did that more than women, 40% of women smoked weed, 42% of the men smoked weed. That's about equal as far as I'm Uh, concerned. Yeah, yeah. Now, women... uh, women do use topicals a little bit more than men, and they do use tinctures a little bit more than men. But as far as vaping, women Mm -hmm. vape more than men, and they used to say that men vape more than women. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of those societal things are changing as far as uh, the the usage is concerned. I think that is, like I said, a more cultural societal question whereas where sex where sex differences are going to really play a role is with cannabis use disorder Mm. and that is because women do even though more men are uh diagnosed with cannabis use disorder yeah females have a shorter onset from cannabis use to cannabis use disorder meaning Uh women go from their first use to cannabis use disorder a lot faster than men do. And women have more severe withdrawal symptoms than men do. Interesting. And yes. Very interesting. I think that's where you're going to find the differences. None of this stuff about different routes of administration and the reasons and and whatnot. Uh, There was even one report that said, and i got to say this because this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever, it's very sexist. (laughs) It said men, excuse me, women have a desire to clean when they're high. Oh
2: boy. Like
0: really? Like I have an innate, I have a gene that tells me that it's time to clean. Really? (laughs) Uh, I I
1: just smoked, now i got to go clean the house and make dinner, I guess
0: it's like Honey, that's the last thing i wanted to <laughs> oh wow wow let's <laughs> see that shows you how sexist and oh, and, and uh the the studies were the people looked at things just wrong yeah and but it's it's but like i said women and men and cannabis use disorder there's something to that because we do transition from first use to cannabis use disorder very, very quickly. And they call that, uh, telescoping. It's like it's zoom right there. And there's no differences in age at first use or heavy use or age of the onset of cannabis use disorder or total number of episodes of cannabis Mm -hmm. use or in the number of criteria, all that is the same. It's just that transition from cannabis use from mm-hmm. onset of cannabis use to onset of cannabis use disorder and the fact that we have more severe withdrawal symptoms
1: that's that's the part that's really fascinating to me because the diagnosis part you know to play devil's advocate you could say well maybe women are more likely to communicate or or seek treatment um more than men for whatever reason or you know there could be some explanation that because a lot of people are very uncomfortable with the idea of cannabis use disorder particularly people that are very active in the industry they don't really like to talk about it that much but um it is something we we need to talk about um but the withdrawal part goes deeper than maybe some possible uh variables that someone's not keeping track of that shows a a distinct um pharmacological difference um that is i think a lot harder to criticize and maybe i'm wrong but as far as how i'm thinking about it right now that's that's a lot harder to criticize than uh the other side of just you know how many diagnoses there are um so that's that's extremely extremely interesting and it's something um i need to find some people to talk to about cannabis use disorder i've got one friend that is um a substance use and addiction expert that i want to talk to but um that's a concept i want to explore more because I I get questions about it and it, you know, it's just tricky to talk about.
0: It it, it is. I, I, and I don't have any scientific basis for saying this is just a, uh, from the material I've read and clinical experience. I, I, I really feel that the concentrates are mm-hmm. what leads to cannabis use disorder. Not all the the regular smoking, vaping, edibles, all that sort of thing. It's it's mainly the concentrates, the the power-packed THC mm-hmm. that. I believe is what's causing cannabis use disorder to emerge because I don't, you know, cannabis itself, we've, it's been for years and years and years. And addiction is not a problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nine to 10% addiction rate. When you look at nicotine being, Almost thirty percent
1: addiction rates so, are right. gambling. I mean, there's like right. non non drug behaviors that are more addictive. Right?
0: Exactly, even your ingestion of sugar. <laughs> sugar is more addicting than cannabis. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, it's just the it's if you look at when we started when you know, concentrates became prevalent, and look at diagnoses such as cannabis use disorder and 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 see where that correlates i think you'll find something there yeah because that that's all i can say and i don't have a scientific basis but it's Mm -hmm. just a like i said speculation yeah yeah
1: well it's a hunch that i um share just from some of the teaching that i've done um i'll never forget that um i taught one workshop where we were talking about cannabinoid toxicity which you know is really low but one thing i mentioned was um the effects that some of the synthetic cannabinoids have on receptors and how long-term thc use especially at high doses very frequently how that can you know alter uh receptor expression and and that sort of thing and i had a student come up to me after the workshop and said i've been smoking dabs every two hours for the past five or 10 years and and i was blown away i for a second i didn't even know how to respond i was like i okay (laughs) like (laughs) i was like you know it it might be interesting to do an abstinence break and see you know how your body responds um if you gave it a break and because we talked about ways to nurture the endocannabinoid system and the importance of if you are a chronic user of taking some breaks eating mm-hmm. uh, some mm-hmm. of those fatty foods getting some extra virgin olive oil and stuff in you and give your body what it needs to make more of those receptors and make more endocannabinoids and everything and um and so you know this person was very concerned but that really opened my eyes you know i, I mean i've i live in oregon i've been exposed to the dabbing culture for a while mm-hmm. um and, and i know how how prevalent it is, I see on Instagram and YouTube people doing ridiculous things. Um, but just just hear somebody like vocalize that, um, you know, every two hours for years—that's
0: pretty amazing. They they must not do anything else.
1: <laughs> well, no. well, I don't uh, you
0: know, know how it, you have time to do anything. Else.
1: I know, yeah. Well, and it's gotten to this point too where you know that was their baseline of functioning. Um, oh wow! And so. Yeah, I don't know. It was it was a a hard kind of conversation and then they came to me later and said that they took a break for a little while but um they had just gotten so used to the the sort of punch that concentrates packed in that they didn't really like flour anymore and they didn't really like anything else and so they just went back to doing that. And I was like, "Well, wow. you know, um be careful. It's best I yeah, can say." It. Yeah. That's
0: yeah, it's all you can say. Yeah, and, and maybe it's that can be expensive though too, can it?
1: <laughs> well, out here in Oregon, you know, depending on who you know, you can get pretty free access to large quantities of okay, you know, cannabis products and stuff. So there, are, there are some people that live out here that are, um, you know, basically never have to spend money on on cannabis, and um, so it creates those sort of scenarios. Um, but that's, you know, something I've definitely wondered, you know, with the dabbing culture as it is, um, getting high potent high concentrations of THC, um, hitting the brain frequently. Um, you know, I, once again, just like you, I don't have science to say one way or the other, but my hunch is, is that's probably not good for you. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. You're right. (laughs) Um, Shifting gears just a little bit, because I don't mm-hmm. want to keep you forever. I, you've been really gracious with the amount of time you've been willing to spend talking with me so far. I wanted to make sure that we talked about fertility, another side, you know, to this whole um, sort of puzzle that we've been talking about with men and women's health. Um, can you speak a little bit about how cannabis, at least as far as what we know so far, how does cannabis affect fertility um, in men and women? Um, and I'd also like to hear your thoughts on, um, like, uh, cannabis use while breastfeeding and that sort of thing too, So I think there's probably a lot of women with questions about that.
0: Sure. Uh, as far as fertility is concerned, we really don't know if cannabis use, if cannabis affects fertility, uh, mm-hmm. and if it does, how, how it affects fertility Animal animal studies suggest that it should affect fertility, since the endocannabinoid system is so intimately involved in uh, fertilization and growth of the of the fetus of the baby. We know that in there's three developmental stages in which the endocannabinoid system plays an essential role uh, for. Survival of the fetus during early gestation, the uh, embryo passing through the tube, the oviduct, and implanting into the uterus requires enzymatic, critical enzymatic control of the endocannabinoids, specifically anandamide. And then during fetal life, the endocannabinoids and CB one receptors are important for brain development important for guiding uh the synapses of the axons and and migration of the axons and it also helps regulate it de- helps the development of the neural cells into the neural subtypes and supporting glial cells so and then postnatally to cb1 activation by 2ag is required in order to initiate suckling. So you would think that any disruption of that will cause a fertility problem, but we really haven't seen that, haven't been able to show that in studies. It hasn't been borne out, like I said, in human studies. Maybe uh, some animal studies, there may be some, but not always. So, And cannabis use is always on the list of things that affect fertility. And when. Couples are going to fertility physicians. So say if you're smoking yeah. cannabis, you need to stop. The, Dr. Michael Eisenberg out of Stanford did a study in 2018 looking at cannabis using couples versus non-cannabis using couples and followed them to pregnancy. And he found no difference in either between the two groups in the time it took to become pregnant. Hmm. So, and that was in 2018. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's just not, it's not clear. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I understand why someone would say that, Mm -hmm. but it's not quite clear that that happens. And the one thing we forget about cannabis is that there is a such thing as tolerance. Mm -hmm. Humans experience tolerance to cannabis so that some of the initial effects of cannabis, when you have tolerance, you don't feel them. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that cannabis isn't effective. Tolerance is great because it allows you to experience symptom relief Mm -hmm. while being able to function, which is key to the whole use of cannabis. You want to still be able to function and be a productive, contributing citizen of society. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) (laughs) We all strive to do that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but um, really, tolerance is a good thing, and maybe tolerance is there to protect us. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. So with respect to fertility, we don't know, but every fertility, if you go seek the advice of a, a management from a fertility physician, that's one of the things they're going to tell you, stop smoking cannabis.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: When there's no proof that that really is a problem. Now, as far as pregnancy and breastfeeding. Let me say this. I'll say this first. The Mm -hmm. best things for pregnant women to ingest are healthy whole foods, clean water and fresh air. Limit white sugar, avoid processed foods and foods with no nutritional values. And it's advised not to ingest or smoke drugs of any kind, including tobacco, alcohol, caffeine, cannabis, pharmaceuticals, opiates, methamphetamines, et cetera, while pregnant.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I got that memorized because that's part of, of my spiel.
2: Right. Got to, yeah. That's
0: <laughs> part of my spiel to my patients. And there is really no known safe or unsafe amount of cannabis that should be used in pregnancy. Yeah. Now, let's look at what the science says because the science is all over the place. There's really... Uh, I'll start with the uh, Nasom report of January, 2017. It reviewed over 10,000 studies, and there was an entire chapter on prenatal, perinatal, and fetal outcome in cannabis use. The only definitive finding in a good quality study was that of lower birth weight. Yeah. yeah. And that was attribute, attributable to the smoking of cannabis probably more uh, I should say it was attributed to the smoking aspect rather than the cannabinoids Mm -hmm.
1: so carbon monoxide
0: right it's shifting of the hemoglobin dissociation curve you remember all that stuff in physiology
1: (laughs) I I try to forget on a regular basis
0: (laughs) (laughs) it rattles my brain even if I say it (laughs) but a lot of the problems with the studies is they aren't using they aren't looking at pure cannabis use.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: It's always compounded with alcohol, Mm -hmm. other pharmaceuticals, Mm -hmm. smoking, smoking is a huge compounding um, factor. So you're not getting a true reading. Now there is the one study that was done on pure cannabis use. And that was the Melanie Dreyer study, which is still is is one of my faves and a study from which we should be building upon which we should build be building mm-hmm. from instead of poo-pooing it.
1: Is that the Jamaican study? That's the Jamaican
0: study, yeah. exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, this is the, the key that people often overlook. This area of Jamaica was rural Jamaica, and they grew their own food. Mm-hmm. They used cannabis as a medicine and as a spiritual uh aid and they didn't take a lot of pharmaceuticals and they didn't drink a lot of alcohol or smoke a lot of cigarettes. Yeah. Didn't really do much of, of that at all. Actually at that time of her study and the the women drank cannabis teas and there was a, a small subset of women that smoked cannabis, but the majority of women did the teas and the salves and, and things like that. So, You're looking at a different population—a population who was probably eating really good food. Their physical bodies were not necessarily contaminated with anything else, and they had. uh, There really weren't any differences between the cannabis-exposed babies and non-exposed—the babies not exposed to cannabis—except a few of the cannabis-exposed babies. were what we call more satisfying kind of had better physiologic stability. However, Mm -hmm. she measured that Mm -hmm. and she did bring in independent examiners to do the examination. So it wasn't the people involved in the experiment and running the experiment during the examining as well. So that was really one good part of the, another good aspect of the study, but all the other studies, the Peter Freed study, uh that follow kids from okay. gestation all the way till they were 22 years old then there was the Goldsmith study Goldschmidt study that followed them from gestation to 14 and then all, other studies showing that there were some adverse effects they really weren't clear on that and all mm-hmm. of them had the limitation that there were confounding factors like cigarettes and and alcohol Some of the studies actually showed where the combination of cigarettes, cigarette smoking and cannabis smoking provided a synergistic effect such that some adverse effects were worse than Uh if you did cannabis smoking alone or cigarette smoking alone. We know cigarette smoking has adverse effects. We really just don't know if cannabis smoking besides the lower birth weight and to some moms, lower birth weight is great because <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> especially if it's your first baby.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, feel so terrible. But I'll tell you, a recent study. This study was just published. I've been waiting for this study. This group—it's a group out of Columbia University in New York—they had a poster presentation in 2017, in which they looked at all the studies that looked at cognitive impairment related to prenatal cannabis exposure, and they found that less than 10% of the studies actually compared the results to the normative. Ah. Well, this team went and did that. They looked at all those old studies, found those tests, compared them to the normative. They looked at more than 1,000 studies and uh, between groups that were exposed to cannabis prenatally and non-exposed controls, and those exposed performed differently on a minority of cases. They were worse in less than three and a half percent of the time, better in less than 1% of the time. So it's, but the majority of the time there was no difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this, wow. Wow. This shows you that Mm -hmm. maybe cannabis doesn't impact the normative the, the babies' cognitive achievements and accomplishments uh, as we're thinking it does. So it's it's I'm just overwhelmed by that. I really yeah, am excited. Absolutely. Actually, I picked up the phone and called one of the authors because I called him about the 2017 poster. And as soon as I got this study, I said, "Oh my gosh, you guys did it! You did it! <laughs> Finally, someone did." Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So getting back to using cannabis during pregnancy, no, I don't generally recommend it, but I know there are circumstances now in which cannabis can be considered harm, considered harm reduction Mm -hmm. and cannabis use in hyperemesis gravidarum. That's a woman who is in early pregnant, just can't stop. Yeah. The nausea and the vomiting are persistent and she's suffering weight loss and, before you put her in the hospital on IV therapy and all the complications that go with that, let her have a toke or two of cannabis on a regular basis and she'll be fine. So that's harm reduction. Yeah. Uh, if they're already using cannabis to control their seizure disorder or treat their PS- PTSD or whatever medical condition and they become pregnant, then there's a management issue. And you you do, what I do is I counsel patients uh, counsel, 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 tell them about what the studies tell us, what they don't tell us. I ask why they're using cannabis. If there's a safer medication, we can switch to that. But if there isn't, and oftentimes there isn't, that's why they're on cannabis. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: I would ask them to use the lowest effective dose and see, okay, are we Let's look at this now. Cannabis, let's look at it as a medicine. We only take it when we need it and we use the lowest effective dose. This is not the time to smoke to get high or use cannabis just because you stayed up all night and now you want to sleep. So you just get some (laughs) cannabis (laughs) so you can go to sleep during the day. No, while you're pregnant, we don't need to do that. But the, 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 it's just, it's, a, it's counseling, it's non-judgment, it's caring, it's keeping the lines of communication open. And I'll conclude my answer with this. There is no reason on this earth to threaten a pregnant woman who uses cannabis with taking their child from them or incarceration or even the slightest disruption of the family just because of cannabis use. There's no reason for that at all. And I will stand firmly on that. And I will testify on behalf of any pregnant woman who this happens to.
1: Yeah, that's very, very awesome to hear. It's something that I've worried about. I I don't know what the statistics look like on that, but it is something I've worried about that as cannabis gets legalized and medical cannabis gets legalized across states, there's not a lot of guidance from um, state health agencies about what will happen if you're a pregnant woman or you're nursing and you're using cannabis and let's say uh, your child injures themselves for some reason and they get some blood work done and maybe for some reason they do a toxicology screen and cannabinoids show up you know in your child what happens then um, and different also
0: states- terrible things happen unfortunately yeah
1: Yeah. and i mean it largely depends on where you live because it depends on on uh, how how strict you know some of that is interpreted but it breaks my heart thinking that anyone out there you know that has been using cannabis in a responsible way and that has found that it you know is helping improve quality of life in some way and ultimately it's not harming anything um that they have to worry about having their entire families disrupted or having their children taken away i mean especially being a parent now if someone were to come and try to take my child away <laughs> you know exactly. it's um, fighting
0: it makes you want to yeah. do things that you never thought you would do
1: exactly exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah um and to base that kind of action on science that's just not there you know, exactly. it's it's more about stigma and bias and all these other things than it is science. Um, it's a real problem that we need to be talking about. And for anyone listening that might be more of a, an activist than I am, because uh, I'm more of just a teacher, but for those that are really, you know, talking with legislators and, and other things like that, if you're involved in a state that is in the process of changing law, like that is something that needs to be talked about. That, how do you handle... Um, pregnant and nursing moms uh, or you know parents in general that have kids, you know, and cannabis is legal. How do you handle that, but all, and provide good guidance to families so that they're not operating in the dark, terrified um and then also the jail problem, you know how do you handle uh yes. your incarcerated populations that are in jail for nonviolent drug offenses that um now you've got a whole economy based around um those two things that i you know I just hope people realize how serious those two issues are um, and that those are getting addressed as we're rushing to open up pathways for cannabis to be accepted as a sort of normal commodity.
0: Yes, that's all very, very true. It's just we have to we have to be reasonable, and I will say this to anyone out there if they need anyone to come and testify uh, if they want a passionate <laughs> yes. yes physician who will come and speak truth, just contact me. I'll be there for you
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah well that's that's excellent excellent resource out there well we've uh, we've been going now for probably about an hour and a half or so it's okay. been. Oh we've goodness. we've covered so much ground. I think there's a lot here that um, people can learn from. And and uh, honestly, a lot of sort of philosophical stuff here for people to chew on as well. Um, so this has been a, a really great pleasure for me. Um, I wanted to, in our last few minutes here, basically open up the platform for you. If there are any topics we haven't covered that you think are really critical that we should go into, we can do that. Otherwise, I want to give you the platform to let people know how to learn more about your work and, you know, uh, like the Society of Cannabis Clinicians and all the other different things that, you know, you've kind of got yourself involved with, um, let people know how to learn more and, and uh, how to find you.
0: Oh, Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, Boy, the time flew. Oh, I know. Yeah. Here I was worried. Oh my gosh, what am I going to say? What if I run out of things to say? Oh no! But this (laughs) just flowed very nicely. You are easy to talk to, Jason. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. the, The conversation really did flow, but certainly but there's a lot more we could talk about as well oh, yes. as women's health. We can get very specific, uh, talk about specific conditions and things, but there's other, there's time, other times for that. We can, yeah. nothing that says we can't do this again.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> so I, yes, I can, my website is victoryrejuvenationcenter.com. that's victory V I C T O R Y rejuvenation center dot com. Uh my email is drwilsonking at drwilsonking.com. That's all D-R-L-L-E-R. lowercase. Yes. D-R W I L S O N K-I-N-G, all lowercase, no spaces or punctuation at the same thing.com. And I am yes, I'm involved in a few things. I've done expert witness testifying for uh cannabis criminal cases. I am co-vice president of the Society of Cannabis Clinicians, which is a, an organization that's dedicated to the education and of physicians and patients about cannabis and especially clinicians. We want all clinicians to be prepared. And we, are, we have a really good CME module and we're redoing it now. And there'll be a brand new one by the end of the year. I'm also a board member of the Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, which is an organization that is that is focused on social justice uh, and helping states formulate their medical cannabis programs such that minorities can be a part of it mm-hmm. and uh, and to include social justice mm-hmm. uh, Protocols and policies. It's,
1: it's uh, conveniently people. left out when That's a lot right. of these laws change.
0: And the brown and black people are the ones who led the way as far as yeah. cannabis is concerned. And they were the pioneers and they're in jail now because yeah. of it. And uh, the non people of color are capitalizing off of that. And there's something wrong with that. Very I think much so. the, the city the state of California, specifically the city of Oakland and San Francisco are trying to right those wrongs in some very uh, creative ways. And uh, one of which, not so creative, but how about not letting a an arrest for cannabis possession stop you from being involved in the cannabis industry. It's like, come on, that's (laughs) not a violent crime. They shouldn't be, they should still be allowed to participate in the industry that they helped to populate, create. So, uh, that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, The care of women is definitely near and dear to my heart. And uh, I am, I don't toot my horn enough. I really don't, but I, I will say this. I am considered an expert in women's health in relation to cannabis and in relation to hormone treatment. So uh, I'll be willing, I'm answer to, willing to answer questions and do consultations. No, I don't prescribe cannabis to, or you don't prescribe cannabis anyway. Cannabis is recommended, right. and I don't yeah. recommend cannabis, or I can't give you a recommendation unless you're a resident of the state of Florida. Yeah. Uh, but else, but I can do. Edu- I do educational consults, and can give you the information you need to do it legally where you live. Yeah. So, feel free to reach out if uh, if you have any questions or concerns, or if there's anything which I can, of which I can be of service to you.
1: That's great. Yeah. And I'll make sure to toot your horn for you wherever I go to make sure people uh, know, um, you know, what your, your specialties are and that you are that, that resource for the community. Um, I'll make sure to help you that way.
0: <laughs> oh, cool. Thank you, Jason. Yeah. I think next time I do this, maybe I will show myself.
1: <laughs> there, there you go. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like you said, you know, we kind of, kept it on the a sort of high level with this discussion, you know, talking in broad terms, of, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, women's health and fertility and all these different things. But absolutely, there's so many specific topics we can go into. And I'm happy to drop in with you anytime you like uh, to go into any of those or all of them, <laughs> uh, of these, uh, you know, more specific areas. And, and one thing that we didn't really get into that uh, might be worth discussing in another episode is uh something that my wife deals with and she gave me permission to talk about her on the show just so everyone knows uh, <laughs> she was like by all means bring this up because more people need to think about it but she deals with um several things that we feel like there's no way they're not connected uh she has really bad migraines she has dysmenorrhea um, and insomnia and all of those problems got better after she had our daughter and her hormones changed, you know, during that time. Um, and then as her body stabilized after about a year, you know, um, after giving birth, it's all coming back, um, in full force. Um, and it's, it's interesting. And something that it would be interesting to discuss with you is the connection between these, um, uh, these groups of symptoms that we often separate, um, that are probably, um, you know, we, we touched on a little bit, but that almost certainly overlap and are, um, highly, highly influenced, um, by hormones.
0: They, you said it was migraine headaches,
1: migraines, insomnia, and dysmenorrhea. Oh yeah. Pretty severe dysmenorrhea. Yeah.
0: Oh, we can talk about that. Absolutely. Does she use cannabis?
1: um occasionally depends she's very sensitive um so and that's another piece you know to that puzzle that plays in there um but sometimes and the relief she gets is hit and miss um but she also hasn't tried to really explore it in a a very like serious sophisticated way of like playing with uh modulating dosaging or anything she's not quite there Mm -hmm. yet Mm -hmm. um but yeah, it's something that before coming in this interview, she was like, "Bring bring that up and just see if there's you know some hor- hormone issue with that." And I was like, "Well, I can tell you, just from what I know, that there's got to be."
0: Um, yeah, she needs um, a hormone panel. Yeah, and you have to do that at a certain time in the cycle,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and 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 check the the hormone levels, and it'll tell you the story just by doing that. But you have to be trained in how to. Mm -hmm. how to assess that, what tests should be ordered, when they should be ordered, and then how to review, how to assess them. And and we can find, yes, we can find out. uh, I think I know what it is, but I would like to (laughs) do the testing to confirm, but yeah, I can probably tell you what it is.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, that's something that, you know, maybe in a follow-up episode, we can talk about these uh, concurrent um, issues um you know that some people are dealing with and um this ties into the endometriosis thing too mm-hmm. um that i think there are a lot of women out there that are struggling to get you know now that i'm thinking about it, i'm like geez i know actually a lot of women going through similar things um but that are trying to get help with a medical issue um, that is being isolated from the bigger picture. And so I, I think, um, just talking about that interconnectedness, um, and how, uh, imbalances in the endocrine system and, and how that ties into the endocannabinoid system and all that, um, can present these, uh, this mosaic, um, of symptoms, which, you know, even Ethan Rousseau, just in his paper about the clinical endocannabinoid deficiencies, uh, linking together like irritable bowel and, um, fibromyalgia and stuff like that, you know, it kind of touches on this idea that when the endocannabinoid system is out of whack, you can sometimes have groups of symptoms that seem like separate diseases and could all just be one. one And they
0: are interconnected. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Maybe, maybe what we could do is, uh, let me interview her and make some recommendations and uh, and see what happens and then if that's something we can talk about on the next podcast yeah. what we did and
1: uh that'd be great if I'm it sure. helped
0: and not and kind of you know walk through the process
1: i'm sure she'd love that yeah that'd be great yeah I'm sure it would help a lot of people too just to hear hear about that process so sure yeah, i'll talk to her about to it
0: do that okay very awesome. cool Awesome. This was great. I can't believe we spent this much time together. <gasps> this is, oh my this
1: goodness. Is, this is what happens. And that's, you know, when I prepare people for the show, I always say, you know, we're going to have a conversation. It's not going to be the type of formal interview that, you know, you might be used to. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's my goal as as the host is to try to make this easy, comfortable and have the time melt away. And before you know it, You know, our listeners have learned so much without even realizing it.
0: Well, you've done a really nice job, and that was, that was, it was not painful
1: (laughs) at all. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, I never, never wanted to be painful. Um, Well, everyone that's, that's, that's tuned in here. You know, go check out Dr. Wilson King's work. Go check out the Society of Cannabis Clinicians. And uh, what was the other group? The Doctors
0: Doctors for Cannabis Regulation, DFCR.
1: Doctors for for Cannabis Regulation. Check all of those groups out. And if you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, you can check us out at cacpodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you're interested in supporting the show, as you may notice, we don't take ads and we don't deal with sponsors to try to uh, maintain integrity in this crazy industry. Um, So if you want to support the show, you can become a supporter at Patreon at patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. And uh, there's all sorts of little ways that I try to find to thank our supporters there, exclusive content, things like that. So if that interests you, feel free to do that. and other than that thanks so much for tuning in take it easy stay curious and i'll catch you next time if you want to learn more about cannabis you can check out the curious about cannabis book available now on amazon.com and other online book retailers Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises, a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.